Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they change laws, change society, or even earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. For more than a century, circuses crisscrossed the country to distract a town's residents from the daily drudgery of work, economic depression, and political upheaval. When, upon entering the circus tent, you were enveloped by the scent of stale popcorn and various animal odors, you knew you could leave your world behind for a few hours, unbothered by the dangers of the so-called real world. At least that's what people told themselves. In reality, the same dangers that threaten the real world also threatened to invade the magic beneath the big top, especially when it came to fires, what with so much cloth and dry hay and nearly every adult that entered had a cigarette in their hands. Legendary circus impresario P.T. Barnum lost two museums in New York to fires in the 1860s. The Barnum and London outfit had a major fire in 1887 and again in 1900 with several smaller fires during the 19-teens. They lost more than $100,000, which is over $3 million in today's money, and yet another fire in 1924. The biggest circus, Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus, had a fire break out August 4th, 1942. Less than a year into World War II, those fighting on the home front needed entertainment and something to take their mind off the horrors happening in Europe and the Pacific. Circus owners, their wallets still painfully thin from poor attendance during the Great Depression, ran specials. For example, if you bought a war bond, you got a free grandstand ticket, and servicemen who arrived in uniform were admitted for free. And on a high note, the 1942 show focused heavily on patriotism, unfurling four huge portraits of President Franklin Roosevelt at the end. On August 4th, the circus was on its second day in Cleveland, Ohio. It was barely 11.30 as crew and performers lined up for a meal as they prepared for the rest of the day. By this point, their day was planned down to the minute. They had 30 minutes to eat and get to their stations. People were allowed through the gates at noon to walk the midway and gawk at the sideshow performers. The first show was at 2.15, with the night show at 8.15 p.m. But before the crew and performers could even get their lunches, someone ran into the room and shouted, Fire! Everyone scattered, each with a job to do. Two men rushed to save the ticket booth, because priorities, while others went to try and save as many animals as possible. But the elephants waited for the boss of the bullmen, Walter McLean. According to Stuart O'Nan in his book, The Circus Fire, A True Story of an American Tragedy, at McLean's command, the elephants, quote, reached down with their trunks and yanked their front stakes out of the ground, end quote. Even with the heroic actions of men like McLean, several animals perished in the Cleveland fire, including two giraffes, an elephant called Ringling Rosie, and several big cats. 
The animals that survived the fire required intensive treatment. Several higher-ups in the circus blamed the blaze on African-American roustabouts. However, it was later determined that the Cleveland fire was likely caused by a spark, caused by a train, or some other source. In short, it was an accident. It was also a public relations disaster, save for one important thing. The circus was able to tout that, hey, at least no spectators had ever died at any of their shows. Which, you know, had to be a great tagline. Come to the circus, where there might be a fire, but no one's died yet. Anyway, as the saying goes, the show must go on. The trains got back on the rails, traveling town to town. Two years later, fire struck again. But this time, the results were catastrophic, with the blaze killing some 170 people, more than one-third of whom were children. The summer of 1944 was already full of critical news events, like the Allied invasion of Normandy, and it would take something huge to bump General George Patton off the front page. The Hartford Circus Fire on July 6th was horrific enough to do just that. It's hard to imagine something as frivolous-seeming as a circus having any lessons to impart to the U.S. government, but the truth is that the circuses were kind of a marvel in the 19th and 20th centuries. During the two world wars, the Fed studied these feats of operation to learn how to move large groups of people, animals, and equipment around via trains. I mean, think about it. The logistics required to pull off these shows in city after city was astounding. Nowadays, we have cell phones and tracking numbers and real-time GPS. Back then, you basically had to trust the train system and, you know, God or the fates or whatever you believed in. That might sound like a joke, but really it isn't, because circus folk were famously superstitious people for just this reason. More on that in a bit, though. For starters, a quick history lesson on circuses. Various circus arts, acrobatics, clowns, and so forth, have been part of different kinds of shows since recorded history began. But the modern idea of a circus was born in England in the 1760s and 1770s, according to Smithsonian Magazine. A cavalryman named Philip Astley brought together various circus elements at his horse riding school near Westminster Bridge in London. The shows at first were centered around horses. Some of the equestrians Astley trained would do horse tricks before a crowd. With that as the backbone of the show, other elements were added. Clowns, acrobats, domesticated animals, musicians, jugglers, and so forth. It proved wildly successful, giving hardworking people an opportunity to see a new kind of entertainment for an afternoon. One of Astley's students is credited with bringing the first circus to America. He was a Scotsman named John Bill Ricketts, whose show drew some 800 spectators to a wooden ring in Philadelphia in April of 1793. According to Smithsonian, quote, Ricketts, a truck driver and his multicultural troupe of a clown, an acrobat, a rope walker, and a boy equestrian, dazzled President George Washington and other audience members with athletic feats and verbal jousting, end quote. It's worth noting, by the way, that Astley's Amphitheater, which originally opened in 1773, burned to the ground in 1784. It had been so successful, though, that Astley was easily able to afford to quickly rebuild it and get it back in business. The inherent fire hazard came from the general setup. The show was arranged in a circular format, or a ring, so that spectators could see what was happening before them at all times. 
The ring was enclosed to keep out the weather, to keep Lucky Lou's from getting a free show, and also keep the trained animals focused on their tricks, which could be very dangerous if the creatures were distracted. Now, the setups Ricketts brought to America weren't meant to be torn down straight away. It was tough getting all that material to any given town in this still newish world. So once showmen like him set up a circus in an area, they stayed there several weeks to recoup the costs. As such, the enclosed spaces were built with roofs and such. Fire was still very much a concern because inside of those enclosures, the carnival workers would cook meals on wooden stoves or carelessly flick cigarettes. And the place was built of wood and littered with flammable material, like the hay that fed the horses, for example. Putting out little fires became part of regular circus life. The setup of the circus changed around 1825 thanks to a showman named Joshua Purdy Brown, who erected a quote-unquote pavilion circus just outside of Wilmington, Delaware. See, city folk in Wilmington had banned public amusement within city limits, so Brown cleverly decided to set up a temporary ring right outside of those limits. Instead of building a semi-permanent wooden structure, he came up with the idea of using a canvas enclosure turning the circus into a more itinerant form of entertainment. It's tough to overstate how big a deal it was when the circus came through town, because, as PBS's American Experience explained, life was hard back then. People woke up early, went to work doing hard manual labor, went to bed late, did it all again the next day. It was grueling. And then, all of a sudden, if you were so lucky, For one magical day, you were transported from your workaday world into the spangles, into the spectacle that crisscrossed the country, the circus. This was more than just a reprieve. It was a chance to glimpse into another world. You saw extraordinary animals that you sometimes had never seen, whether you were a child or an adult. Seeing a giraffe was totally unheard of, and seeing wild cats and zebras, African animals, Asian animals. You can understand why this escape became even more important to folks during the two world wars. Things had just grown so impossibly bleak. For generations, the story was familiar. The circus crashed in on everyday life, loud and brash, then vanished like an illusion leaving some child dreaming of a different life. The World Wars had another effect on the circuses, too, from a fascinating horror documentary. The circus itself was also impacted by war. Resources were scarce and transport was often disrupted. The movement of munitions and supplies for the war took priority over everything else. As author Onan described in The Circus Fire, even the general manager, George Washington Smith, who handled all of the logistics for the Barnum & Bailey Circus, had left to make more money with the Army's war show. This inevitably led to safety issues, which, when combined with the inherent danger of fire, spelled disaster. By the 1940s, the biggest circus company had come from the merging of Barnum and Bailey with the Ringling Brothers. And in early July of 1944, that company had its sights set on Hartford, Connecticut. The advance man, that's the person who traveled ahead of the circus, arrived in Hartford on July 4th to prepare the rented lot on Barber Street for the rest of the troupe. 
It was his job to procure all the food for both the humans and the animals, a task much harder with the war rationing. He also hired people to mow the grass on the lot and generally prepare it for thousands of visitors. John Sponzo, quoted in the circus fire, was the man hired to prepare the grounds. He said that when his team was finished with their job, there was not enough dry grass for a fire to possibly start. The lot was entirely ready for the matinee on July 5th, except for one thing. The trains carrying the circus to Hartford, Connecticut hadn't arrived yet. Late trains had plagued the circus all season, but this was the first show they actually had to cancel. When the trains eventually pulled into Hartford, the entire troupe was on edge. Missing a show was considered bad luck, very bad luck. Everyone from the ringleader to the ticket takers were fearful of disaster. But tents had to go up, performers had to warm up, animals had to be fed, all for the evening show. They must have breathed a sigh of relief when the evening show on the 5th of July went off without a hitch. By the following afternoon, temperatures had risen to nearly 90 degrees with the high humidity of an East Coast summer. The author Onan wrote that the heat had people considering going to the air-conditioned movie theater over outdoor amusement, but the hubbub surrounding the circus was hard to ignore. After all, it would only be in town for a limited time. And so, on July 6th, the circus came to Hartford, Connecticut. Excited residents crowded into the big top to watch a performance unrivaled in that day and age. Trained lions and tigers, daredevil stunts, a menagerie of exotic creatures, and a series of acrobatic marvels. Around 7,000 people filed into the huge canvas enclosure to enjoy the show. The gates opened at 1 p.m., with spectators flooding in to see everything there was to see. Attendees like Grace Smith and her two children, Elliot and Joan, explored the midway before joining the line at the big top. The show was scheduled to start at 2, and ticket holders all wanted the best seats. From a Fox 61 retrospective newscast, Nancy Spada, then only 10 years old, recalls the beautiful rainbow colors that she called children's colors. Everything was absolutely in technicolor. Charles Nelson Riley would later remember the spectacle, too. The storied actor was 13 years old when, against his mother's wishes, he went with a neighborhood friend named Donald to the afternoon performance of the circus. His mother was upset because Charles's father was already planning on taking Charles to the evening performance, and when Charles snuck out to go with Donald anyway, his mother supposedly yelled after him, I hope it burns to the ground. In a stage performance called The Life of Riley, Charles describes the start of the show as nothing short of magical. Wow. And the first act was the animal act. Wild animals, lions and tigers, and the crack of the whip and the sword that flew up. Look, Donald! And then a hush fell over the tent because the greatest circus act in the world was going to come and perform next. The flying Walundas. They were famous the world over. And they came out. They had beautiful yellow costumes, all feathers, and they were carrying chairs on their shoulders and they made pyramids. Look, they're going to walk all across the three rings without a net. And this beautiful acrobat with a headdress of yellow feathers, when she stepped on the wire. Soon after the performances began, the first flame appeared. 
according to the July 1944 issue of the National Fire Protection Association Quarterly, the fire's origin point was apparently, quote, on or near the ground outside the canvas, about 20 feet from the main exit, end quote. This was described as being between the main exit and the canvas enclosure for the men's toilet, which backed up to the main tent at that point. Despite John Sponzo insisting that dry grass couldn't have helped ignite a fire, this article stated otherwise, positing that the grass at the site was dry from the heat and may have been ignited by a match or cigarette. Few people noticed the earliest flames. I saw that one flame in the back and realized what it was. This is Uriel Goldsmith, who was a little boy when he attended the circus that day. He's telling a story here to NBC Connecticut a few years ago. And I said, out. And while I saw many people, we were fairly, fairly high up. And my thought was, what's the fastest way out? There weren't stringent fire safety regulations at the time, but it wasn't exactly the Wild West either. The circus did have fire extinguishers on hand and a wagon that was supposed to be put in use as soon as a fire was spotted. Trouble was, though, that by the time the blaze caught most people's attention, it had already grown to six feet tall. By then, the flames were already so large that those safeguards were basically useless. While we don't know what caused the initial fire, we do know what caused it to spread so fast. The big top was made of two types of canvas. The side walls were plain fabric and had no fireproofing at all. The roof, on the other hand, was made of fireproof canvas. But fireproof canvas which had been soaked in a mixture of paraffin and gasoline in order to protect it against rain. A waterproofing process that was quite normal and accepted at the time. Without any fire retardant and with the canvas fabric overhead having been treated with literal gasoline, the flames grew and reached taller and wider, soon reaching the underside of the top. A southwestern gust of wind pushed the fire up and underneath the cloth and into the interior of the tent. Unsurprisingly, the canvas fabric was almost instantly enveloped in flames. When survivors of the 1944 Hartford Circus Fire told their stories in later years, most agreed that they'd first realized something was wrong thanks to Merle Evans, the band leader, directing his band to play The Stars and Stripes Forever. A pre-agreed emergency song, which served the dual purpose of calming the crowd and alerting all circus staff that something was wrong. This is kind of wild to me to think about because it's not something we do today. But in short, the crowd had already been alerted that if the band began to play Stars and Stripes Forever, that meant something was wrong and they were to leave the arena. This practice wasn't specific to the circus, to be clear. It was a nationally understood distress signal of sorts, chosen because people thought its patriotic nature would help keep people calm in a situation where panicking could be deadly. So when the band began to play the song, that was the first clue most people had that something was amiss. They remembered the instructions they'd heard countless times before, sort of like recalling the flight attendant's instructions about how to handle a plane emergency. You've listened to that over and over again, so you've got some muscle memory built in from the instructions, but at the same time, you always assumed you'd never really have to do any of that stuff. Meanwhile, Fred Bradna, the ringmaster, also tried to keep panic at bay by bellowing instructions on how to proceed outside, but then the fire shorted power to his microphone. 
Soon, the flames began to climb the tent sides. As spectators looked up in horror, the ropes tying the tent to the support poles disintegrated, causing the poles to fall akimbo, which in turn caused the first injuries and deaths. To further complicate any hope of a calm and orderly evacuation, the best exit out of the inferno had been blocked as soon as the show had started. Just as the audience was seated, the animal wranglers had moved the ramps to prepare for the animals' entrances. This placement had been fine-tuned over thousands of performances, with the emphasis always being on wowing the audience with the best entrance possible. No one ever expected a massive fire. Yet to maintain the magic of the circus, the animal cages were out of sight. So when people ran toward this exit, they found no escape and couldn't wrap their heads around why the exit was blocked. According to that National Fire Protection Association quarterly article, which, by the way, was titled Hartford Circus Holocaust, people, quote, piled up against the runway at the end. Attempts to climb over the steel cage bars were largely futile for women in high-heeled shoes and for small children, end quote. The same report stated that the majority of the victims found in this location were discovered piled four deep against the cage obstruction in the main north aisle. This is Eileen Frank of the Connecticut Historical Society. And so as people were trying to escape the big tent, they found themselves unable to get out of the exits. And so there are lots of reports of people having to slash through the canvas um, to make their own way out. Elsewhere beneath the tent, others amazingly weren't panicking. Many assumed that the fire would be quickly contained and that leaving too hastily might actually cause more trouble by causing a stampede. Sadly, that restraint would also cost dozens of people their lives. Eight minutes after the fire began, the tent collapsed. That's what sealed the fates of so many people. The flaming fabric that fell to the ground trapped dozens beneath it and ignited the flimsy summer clothing many had chosen to wear in the stifling summer heat. The majority of those killed that day were found beneath the smoldering canvas. That tent was a mile of fabric that within 10 minutes just came down on the crowd. That was Leslie Choquette, whose grandparents had been in the crowd talking to NBC Connecticut. My grandfather, a very tall man, took my mother, they were working their way down, they were by the animal chute, took my mother, told her to remain very stiff, and he was going to push her over into whatever it took, get up and run. Don't look back and run. Further confusion and injuries were caused by a significant number of folding chairs that had been lined in the reserved seating section. This violated code, which at the time specified that where more than 200 seats were provided, those seats should have been securely fastened to the floor. In this situation, there were far more than 200 chairs, and they weren't even fastened to each other, much less secured to the actual floor. That meant that while people ran, chairs were pushed in all directions, tripping and trapping people as they tried to flee. Charles Nelson Riley escaped with his friend Donald. He remembered the scene being utter chaos. Some people jumped 10 to 12 feet from the top of bleachers trying to escape the flames, only to be trampled once they hit the ground. Little girl went past me and her face had been burned away. She kept screaming, my mommy's gonna kill me, my mommy's gonna kill me. She was already dead. Her mother wasn't gonna kill her, the circus did that. An off-duty fireman at the circus, a police radio car, and residents in a nearby house who could see the fire from their home made multiple calls to the Hartford Fire Department pleading for help. 
Seven engines from three ladder companies were dispatched to the lot on Barber Street, with the nearest only half a mile away. When they arrived, they discovered there were no hydrants within circus grounds, only along the street leading into the circus and on adjacent streets. Before officers could do anything, they had to run their water hoses from the hydrants to the actual fire. According to Fire Marshal Thomas, the first chief officer on the scene, the big top was completely consumed within the first 10 minutes and the poles were down. After assessing the situation, Thomas reported that their task, quote, was to extinguish the blazing stands and extricate the dead, end quote. Firefighters did attempt to rescue any remaining survivors, but the likelihood of finding any was dwindling. Once the fire was finally under control, the mayor of Hartford, William Mortensen, authorized Marshal Thomas to investigate the fire. Thomas worked throughout the day until near midnight when the investigation was transferred to the state fire marshal's office. It was fairly easy to determine the point of ignition, and the marshal attributed the cause to careless smoking, stating that a match or cigarette could have smoldered for several minutes in the dried grass at the point of origin before the fire attracted attention. People were angry. People were very angry that this was something that did not have to happen. There were no fire regulation capacities then, and the way seating was everywhere, people were literally tumbling over, jumping off of the risers. Newspapers from Connecticut pushed the news of the war to one side to report on what many called the Hartford Holocaust. And the Nagatok Daily News, a town 35 miles from Hartford, the morning edition of July 7th reported a death toll of 145, including 30 children. 20 of the 214 injured at various Hartford hospitals were listed as being in critical condition. The same article estimated that the eventual death toll may reach as high as 159. Little did they know it would exceed even that. The official death count was 168 people, but there were between 400 and 600 people who were injured and um, some of whom died several days later. National Guard was involved, American Red Cross, Salvation Army. There were a number of those sort of relief agencies that had to get involved. Just the impact of having that many people who had died and due to the fact that they died in a fire, their bodies sometimes were not easily identifiable. As victims were found, they were transported to the Hartford Armory for identification. Delos Smith in the Nagatok Daily News described, quote, an unended procession of sorrowing men and women who shuffled past rows of army cots with olive green blankets that covered the bodies of 80 children. Occasionally, there would be a dry sob, which was barely audible, and a coroner's assistant would rush forward to take the person's information, write it on a card, and attach it to the green blanket that covered their child. Hartford residents serving overseas read about the fire in the military newspaper Stars and Stripes. Author Stuart O'Nan mentioned one sergeant marching through France who read an article and immediately sent a letter home to ask if his wife was still alive. Unable to wait for his letter to go through the military censors, travel from France to Connecticut, and for his wife to respond, the soldier collared a Red Cross worker to get answers. Happily for him, his wife had contacted the Red Cross, who had sent a telegram to France, quote, family all well, not at circus, end quote. Another soldier, a corporal, wouldn't hear about his mother's death in the fire for several days until he finally received his father's letter. One person saved from the fire was Phyllis Kirsch, 
who's nine years old on July 6, 1944, on the 75th anniversary of the fire, her daughter Kathy gave an interview to News 8, a local Connecticut news outlet. Phyllis's best friend, Valerie, was going to the circus with her grandmother to celebrate Valerie's ninth birthday. Excited, Phyllis asked her mother if she could join her bestie at the circus. And according to Kathy, her grandmother, quote, asked my mother just one simple life-saving question. Did you do your chores today? End quote. When Phyllis answered truthfully that she hadn't, she was told she couldn't go. Phyllis never saw Valerie again. The little girl would never turn nine and was only able to be identified by her white communion shoes. Valerie's mother visited Phyllis after the funeral, bringing her all of her daughter's dolls. The collection is now part of Phyllis's family, being passed down through the generations. Another survivor was Maureen Krakian, 11 at the time of the fire, who gave an interview to NPR in 2007. Maureen told NPR that she was supposed to go with her friend and her mom, but they had left by the time she knocked on their door with two choices, either going home to tell her grandmother, which would mean not going to the circus, or going to the circus grounds herself, Maureen took off toward the circus on her own. She sat in the bleachers when the fire began and remembers, quote, somebody yelling and seeing a big ball of fire near the top of the tent, and this ball of fire just got bigger and bigger and bigger, end quote. Jumping down from her seat, she landed in the straw and said that a young man had a pocket knife. He slit the tent, took her arm, and pulled her out. As of 2007, she hadn't been able to thank the person who saved her. Said if she could, she would, quote, throw my arms around him and thank him. I wouldn't be 74 years old today. I'd be long gone, end quote. With stories quickly circulating through Hartford, calls for justice grew louder and louder. On the 7th, five officials of the Ringling Brothers Circus were charged with involuntary manslaughter. Arrested by Hartford police on the evening of the 6th, the circus officials paid their heavy bail, set between $10,000 and $15,000 respectively, to await their hearings on July 19th. The men were eventually convicted, with sentences ranging from six months to two to seven years in prison. But these men were granted special treatment from the jump. Even after they had been convicted, they were allowed to follow the circus to their winter homes in Florida before reporting for their sentences. Then, soon after their convictions, the men's families began lobbying politicians on their behalf, and the pardon started coming. Most served less than half of their sentences. One of them, James Haley, went on to serve as a congressman for 24 years. Some positives did come from the disaster, however, as you hear in this news story. New reform developed from the ashes. Different substances would be used to waterproof objects, and new fire code regulations would be enacted, impacting lives across the country for years to come. The legacy of the lives lost, forever commemorated and never forgotten. To this day, the Hartford Circus Fire of 1944 stands as one of the worst temporary structure fires in American history. The circus accepted full responsibility for the financial damages, but refused to accept responsibility for the catastrophe itself. Survivors had one year to file claims against the circus, which included both physical and mental suffering. The first claim to be filed was that of Salvatore DiMartino's. His wife died in the fire and Salvatore was asking for $15,000, the maximum in 1944, for a death by accident in Connecticut. All profits from the circus were rerouted toward paying these claims, and it still took them until 1954 to pay the nearly $5 million 
to the nearly 600 victims and their families. To research the story, Jennifer Erdman, assistant professor and chair of the history slash political science department at Notre Dame of Maryland University, read Stuart O'Nan's book, The Circus Fire, a true story of an American tragedy, and dug through contemporary reports and news coverage. I watched a couple of documentaries and found The Life of Riley by Charles Nelson Riley to be completely mesmerizing. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This episode was written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at centuriespod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. Mm-hmm.